Amen. We come back today, we're coming back to the 8th chapter of Hebrews, which uh, we have been there, I know, for an extended period of time. If you take the nine months break we had uh, into consideration, Uh, we've been in Hebrews 8 for a long time, but it's an important chapter. And part of what I had said I would do a year ago, if you go back like nine months, part of what I had said we would do is I said that we would go through and have one Sunday where we would look at the idea of covenant theology or the covenants in regard to what happens in Hebrews chapter 8. Now, this is an important argument for Baptists because as Baptists, we hinge a lot of our historic beliefs on what is said about the covenants and how God has ordered the covenants. And I don't pretend for a moment that we can go through covenant theology as a whole or in any way study it in one Sunday Um, But we want to look at an overview, because like I said, I told somebody we would do this. Unfortunately, they're not here today. So anyway, uh, we'll do it anyway and trust the Lord to use it and and bless it. But we need to think about this because covenant is at the heart of what God has done. We know this because in the New Testament, we read of a new covenant, right? A new covenant. And that covenant is in the blood of Christ, purchased by Christ, right, perfected by Christ, ministered by Christ, applied by Christ. All of these things, the Bible tells us clearly our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. We just sang a song that says that very thing. So we need to recognize this. So uh, what I'm going to try to do, I've been wrestling with this for a long time. We took a break about nine months ago from Hebrews because I was getting a little weary uh, of, of, from walking through Hebrews. Hebrews is a difficult book. So we went back to Matthew's gospel for a while and these other journeys you know along the way. But we've come back to it and I want to finish this up. And I've thought about how will we deal with covenant theology in a bigger uh, chunk, if you will, or in a, a bigger way. And I thought, well, maybe we'll do it in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, where we go through a lot of the, the great men and women of faith. And we see particularly with some of those figures that God made covenants with them. Uh, we can think about Abraham and so forth that God covenanted with and I thought, well, we're already going to be in Hebrews 11 a long time as we look at the, the lives of these, these great men and women of faith. So I thought, maybe not Hebrews 11. And then I think what I've come to the decision to do, especially if this interests the church, is uh, maybe next spring. You know, we'll, we've gone through Pilgrim's Progress 1 last spring, Pilgrim's Progress 2 this spring, early church history in the fall. This fall will be medieval church history. We're going to maybe next spring look at the covenants and go through maybe a, a classic book like Nehemiah Cox's book on the covenants of God, and uh, maybe spend about the first half of the year in that, so we can understand a little better how God has worked and ordered things covenantally. So we're going to see today is a jet tour, right? Just like you're flying over a subject, you're just seeing bits and pieces um, of it, but it'll be things I think you're familiar with. If you're not, and you want to know more about it, talk to me. I can maybe offer you a book to read. Um, but, but also just maybe hold on for another six months and we'll, we'll come back to it. But anyway, so we want to look at this. Now, uh, at the end of the day, what we want to recognize is this. Normally, we don't preach on theological subjects specifically. We preach through passages and deal with theology in those passages. This is going to feel a little different than we normally do uh, because we're tackling a subject that is found kind of systematically throughout the Scriptures, not just in any one text. And there are certain things that you deal with in the Scriptures that are like this, and so we just have to deal with it this way. But it is rooted in Hebrews chapter 8. I want you to recognize that. So we're going to be looking at this, and then we'll move next week into Hebrews chapter 9 and continue through 9 and 10, hopefully, this summer. 
but as we look at this idea of a jet tour through the history of salvation, we want to think about what God has been doing over time and how he's done it. Because it's a glorious story and it's important for us to understand if we're going to understand the scriptures and how they work together as one story that tells us how God redeemed fallen man. And so we want to look at that today. Uh, I want to ask you to consider Hebrews 8 because there's some important phrases and verses there that we will need to recognize are in very important to what makes us Baptists. And so we need to understand this. I'm going to read it one more time. I'm going to ask you to listen closely because we'll come back to a few of these phrases a little later. So the author of Hebrews says, Now this is the main point of the things which we are saying. In other words, this is the main point of the entire argument of Hebrews. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's already explained that very thing. A minister of the sanctuary, this is the true heavenly sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one, meaning Jesus, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he, meaning Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart and write them on their hearts, excuse me, in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sin and lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I'm going to ask for your prayers this morning since this is a different type of sermon than I normally preach. Um, it's a little different for me and so I don't feel as comfortable as I normally do, but I think it's an important one and it's one that normally I would feel more comfortable preaching on a Wednesday night and that's why we're going to get to it in January in the new year in, on Wednesday nights. But as I said, I committed to do this, and so I want us to because it is important. And so as we think about Hebrews chapter 8, we want to look at two points. First of all, why is the idea of covenants or covenantal theology important? And second of all, why is Hebrews 8 important to this? What does Hebrews 8 have to do with any of it? Why is it so important understanding why Baptists are Baptists? Where did Baptists come from? Why do we believe, for instance, in believer's baptism? Why do we not hold to pedo or infant baptism? All that comes from our understanding of the covenants of God. And so we need to understand why we hold to these things. And so I want to begin, first of all, with that 
question, why is this idea of covenants important? Now, oftentimes you'll hear about this as covenant theology or federal theology or federalism, and that comes just from the Latin word at the heart of this, which means covenant, right? So that's where it comes from. So federal theology is covenant theology, but it's important to us to understand why we hold to this. And some of this you will have heard. We preach this a lot, even if we don't specifically say what it is. We don't always say this is covenant theology. Sometimes we do, but it's important to recognize why this is important, because at the heart of what made Baptist Baptists uh, in those early days of the Reformation, all the faiths that came out of the Reformation, when they began to debate and argue, well, what do you believe and what do we believe? Uh, and we'd find those places where Baptists kind of separated a little bit from their brothers that are Presbyterians or Anglicans or Lutherans or whatever. It's because of this. It's because of the covenants. And we need to recognize this. This was the belief of the, most of the men that signed the London Baptist Confession uh, was this sort of covenant theology. And many of the leaders <clears throat> who signed that uh, statement wrote books on this, extensive books on this. And so we need to recognize that. So what we want to recognize is what covenant theology is, is the idea that we can understand how God relates to man through his use of covenants. Now, that's not hard for us to realize in the New Testament. And oftentimes we see it there and don't notice it anywhere else. But God is always related to man through covenant. We see it in the Garden of Eden. We see it after the Garden of Eden. We speak about a, a covenant with Noah. We speak of a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with David, on and on and on. And then the new covenant with Christ and in Christ and sealed in his blood. So we need to recognize this. But the scriptures speak first of all to a covenant of redemption. Now this is not easy to find a verse and point right to, but there are verses that speak to this. Right, That before time began, God pledged to do a work of salvation. Okay, this is an inter-Trinitarian conversation. The Father to the Son, uh, obviously the Holy Spirit involved in this as well, but we see this in certain texts that ask us to consider this truth. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, In hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Well, who did He promise it to? If God the Father promised the salvation of a people before time began, to whom did he make that promise? No human being existed before time began. But God always has existed. He is eternal. And so again, this is a way that the, the uh, scriptures are telling us that this was something done within the Godhead, that the Father promised the Son, you will go and die to redeem a people in time. And the Son fully willing to go. Praise God, fully willing to go to redeem us. We also see it in 2 Timothy 1.9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our work, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now those aren't the only two verses. We could point to many verses. The Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. There's a sense in which we can understand Christ's crucifixion as being planned before anything was created, before anything ever existed. The scriptures tell us this in numerous places, in numerous places. So the Father covenanted with the Son in eternity past to save a people for whom Christ would give His life 
And that is the initial covenant from which all other covenants in Scripture flow. If you don't have that covenant down, you won't understand any of the other ones that follow after it. So we start there. God proclaiming in eternity past that Christ would come and save a people. Now chronologically, the next covenant would be the one he made with Adam. And people will object sometimes and say, I've read Genesis and there's nowhere that it explicitly speaks of a covenant made with Adam. And I would say that's true in one sense. There is no explicit mentioning of a covenant with Adam. But it's everywhere in the scriptures that there was a covenant made with Adam. We can see, first of all, that all the signs that accompany a covenant are there. All the signs. For instance, there are elements spoken of, of the reward for keeping the covenant. Now again, it's symbolic, but Adam was put in the garden and was given commands. He was given some understanding of the moral law of God. And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. If Adam had killed Eve instead of eating of the tree, it's not as if that wouldn't have been a sin, right? He would have fallen and all mankind with him. But he disobeyed God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the Bible clearly and plainly tells us this. Adam sinned. But recognize this. Most theologians argue that in this, there was a, a period, if you will, a period of testing, some people call it, a period of probation, some people call it. The idea being if Adam had obeyed until the fullness of God's time, then Adam would have been glorified. right? Adam would in some way in his posterity, they would have been uh, given immortality and incorruptibility, <clears throat> both Adam and Eve and their offspring. And so again, we recognize this. This is benefit of keeping the covenant would have been demonstrated in the presence of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, which Adam did not eat from, was not to eat from, and after he fell was guarded from getting back to, right? We also can get into theology in Revelation where the tree of life reappears again, uh, symbolizing the, the fruit that is available to the children of God for all of eternity. So again, we need to recognize that imagery again. So there is a covenant. Now, even if you want to go beyond that and say, well, there's some, some symbols of reward, okay. But don't forget, there's also the consequences of disobedience to the covenant made. What happens if Adam eats of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, we don't have to wonder because he did that. And the Bible tells us, as God had warned, on the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. Now, he didn't die as we might expect, immediately in terms of he's buried that day, right? But death enters on the day that he eats of the fruit. And likewise, we know that death entered the world, and not just for Adam and Eve, but for all the children of Adam and Eve, which guess what is everybody on earth. Everybody. We all have this sin problem. We all have this problem with death because sin entered in the way the Scriptures tell us in the book of Genesis. And so we recognize this. Now, if we want to go a little bit further than this and recognize that it makes clear there's a covenant uh, in, given here, we can say, even if you don't see it in Genesis, turn to Hosea 6-7. If you've got a, a translation like the ESV or NSB, it translates this word there, Adam, as Adam. The King James and New King James, which I preach out of, translates it more as men, because Adam means mankind when it's used as a noun, or man. And so in mine it says, 
for man disobeyed, I'll give you the exact quote here. Uh, some Bibles will word it slightly different, but it basically says here uh, that Adam, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, again, check that out. Hosea 6, 7. Now, again, if you have a King James, it'll say mankind. But that word is Adam. And, it, and I think the newer translators have been correct to recognize that God is referring to Adam. Like Adam who transgressed my covenant, so they have transgressed my covenant. They have not dealt faithfully. But even if that doesn't convince you, if you say, no, 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 I like the older translation, let's go with mankind, then I'll give you the argument of the Puritans. Anthony Burgess said it's obvious scripturally, it's obvious in biblical theology that there must have been a covenant made with Adam. And here's why. Because in Romans, Paul both compares and contrasts Adam with the last Adam who is Christ. And what does he say? Just as through one man's disobedience, death entered the world for all, so through one man's obedience, salvation enters through all. Do you see here? It's a parallel, isn't it? Just as Adam through his fall and disobedience brought death into the world, so Christ by his obedience brings life to his people. Now you say, well, how does that prove a covenant? Well, we know that Christ did it by covenant. When we come to this table, we're going to remember that Christ said that this is the blood of the new covenant, right? Sealed in his blood. And the reason that redounds to us, the reason the effects of the covenant redound to us, is because Christ is our covenantal head. He represents us before God. By the way, that's what it means to be in covenant. Somebody makes a covenant, and it's binding upon all people under that person. When God made a covenant with Abraham, it was bound of the children of Abraham. And Paul explains that to us in Galatians. You know, it doesn't matter that you can say, well, I didn't sign that covenant. I didn't agree to that covenant. It doesn't matter. Think about this. Uh, Joe Biden as president can't say, well, I'm not bound by that treaty or covenant that was made. That was Trump that made that, or that was Obama who made that, or that was Bush who made that, or that was Clinton who made it. It doesn't matter. If a treaty is signed, it is signed. It is binding. And there are consequences for breaking it. And the same is true biblically. It doesn't matter that you weren't there at Mount Sinai. It doesn't matter that you're 20 or 30 generations down from there. That treaty, that obligation is binding upon you if you were a child of Israel. And so we need to recognize this idea of covenant and what it means. Because often we don't like the covenants that reflect on us badly, right? The covenant with Adam, we don't like that because Adam sinned. Well, you have too, right? In your fallen nature, you have sinned too. But you don't mind that Christ's righteousness applies to you in the new covenant. You don't deserve that. You stand in his righteousness by faith. And therefore, his righteousness applies to you. You didn't earn that. He earned that. And so, my friends, when we recognize this truth, we see here that what Anthony Burgess was trying to remind us of is if it took a covenant for Christ's righteousness to apply to us, then we can presuppose that there was a covenant with Adam through which his sin applies to us. So again, it's just a parallel argument that Paul uses in Romans that proves that there was a covenant with Adam. Now, what was the nature or substance of that covenant? Work. It wasn't by its nature a gracious covenant. Now I want to say something right here. I need to 
part because this is important for me to say. Every covenant God gives in one sense is gracious. There's a sense of grace in all that God does. Even in his judgment, we were looking recently at the minor prophets. It is judgment unto the enemies of God, but it is grace unto the people of God at the exact same time. In the same way, did God have to create Adam? No. God chose to create Adam. Did he have to give Adam a helpmate? No. God chose in his grace and mercy to give Adam a helpmate. Did he have to put him in the Garden of Eden? No, God graciously chose to give Adam this glorious garden to live in and to be steward over. And when Adam fell, did God owe any form of redemption to mankind? No. God could have said, you've fallen into sin, and I will punish you eternally and all your offspring forever and ever and ever, and he would have fulfilled the terms of the covenant he made with Adam. No unrighteousness. God would have been just to do that. But praise God, God is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. And so God, even from the beginning, after the fall of Adam, does not say, I'm going to bring destruction on mankind without any, any way of, of redemption. No, from the very beginning, he tells Adam and Eve that from the seed of woman, one will come who will crush the serpent's head. Praise God, that's the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. The first preaching of the gospel is found right there right after the fall. So again, we need to recognize that God is always gracious in what He does, but we also need to recognize that the nature or substance of the covenant made with Adam was not of grace. It's gracious in giving it. It's gracious in many aspects. But the basis of the justification of Adam was do this and live. Break this and die. Paul says that is the nature of law. We know that, don't we? As citizens of a country, as people in this world, if you violate certain laws, bad things will happen. If you obey the laws, then hey, you'll be fine. Generally, right? Generally, as a general rule. But we recognize the Bible preaches the same thing. Obey the law of God, and you'll be right with God. Break the law of God, and you will not be right with God. This is what Adam is given as a proposition. And Adam failed. This is what God says through His Word, that Adam failed. And it was God's plan from the beginning that there would come a last Adam who will not fail. Who cannot fail. Because he is God incarnate. So I want you to recognize that what happened in the garden, it went well or not well based on how Adam responded. That's a covenant of works. Do this and live. Now everybody agrees on that. We come to a third covenant we can all agree on. The covenant of grace. You have the covenant of redemption from eternity past, pictured in the scriptures. The covenant of works in the garden, which was failed, broken by man, and therefore fell into sin and death. And then another covenant that is all throughout scripture called the covenant of grace. God offering grace. Well, he didn't have to, so his giving of it is gracious. But all of it is gracious. All of it is gracious. We just said a moment ago, you will not stand if you were in Christ on the day of judgment on your own righteous merits. You will stand in the righteousness of Christ which is applied to you. Praise God for that.
Because I know I wouldn't stand on the day of judgment if I stand in my righteousness. Even if I don't fail on a daily basis, which I do, I can think back to many points in my life where I have failed. And I think everyone in this room can say the same thing. We have all fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned. All gone astray. That's the story of, the, of humankind. We are all sinners. But praise God, He planned a covenant of grace in which He would redeem a people. And it's pictured all throughout the Bible. From that Genesis chapter 3 and the promise of the first gospel to even in the flood when mankind had sinned so woefully that God would have been right to just wipe out all of mankind again, He saves an ark full of people. How about with Abraham? Again and again, Abraham uh, is called to be the, the head of a new people, if you will, right? That God is going to work through to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He tells Abraham that from the very beginning, in you all the nations shall be blessed. In you all people shall be blessed. Praise God. But even in that covenant, there are pictures over and over again of the grace of God. We talked about this last week when Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. And Abraham has trouble grasping why God would ask him to do this, but he's confident that God has said it's through this child that the promise will come and therefore if I sacrifice him according to the to the order of God that God will necessarily raise him up from the dead we'll read that in Hebrews chapter 11 Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead amen but God didn't allow Abraham to sacrifice Isaac he stopped him and he provided a ram caught in the thicket to sacrifice in the place of Isaac And even there we're reminded God provides. He provides for our need as well. We have no sacrifice that avails before God, not perfectly. But there is one sacrifice that perfectly avails before God, and that's Christ. He is the perfect and spotless Lamb of God. He is the one God has provided for His people. And we can continue through all the Scriptures and find this picture over and over and over again. And we recognize that all people who have been saved at any point in human history have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Whether it's in the Old Testament or whether it's in the New Testament, Paul says there's been some misunderstanding about this. We want to make it clear all believers are saved by the blood of Christ through faith. How do we know that? He says, how was Abraham saved? Father Abraham, was he saved by the law? He said, no, Abraham was declared righteous long before the law was ever given. The law was given in Exodus. We find Abraham in Genesis. No, he says, no, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith, and faith in what? Well, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. I don't know how well Abraham could see that day. But whatever light Abraham had to see Christ and the sacrifice that Christ would make on Calvary's cross, he believed it. And it was accounted unto him for righteousness that through his seed the gospel would come and through his seed all nations would be blessed. That's what he believed. So my friends, we need to recognize that there is also this this covenant of mercy, this gracious covenant. Now, we agree on that with all of our brothers and sisters practically. All of them practically. 
Where do we disagree with them? Where do we disagree with them? Well, between the Garden of Eden and the new covenant in Christ, there's a number of covenants offered, aren't there? And we have a different interpretation of what God is doing during that, those covenants. It's not unique to Baptists. Many congregationals held to it. The great John Owen held to this. But again, we need to recognize that there's a question. When, when God gives the proto-evangelium in Genesis chapter 3, that first gospel, is he formally making a covenant there or is he promising to make a covenant? When he makes the covenant with Abraham, is that the covenant of grace or does it prefigure the covenant of grace that comes in Christ? When he makes a covenant with Moses at Sinai, is that another example or age of the covenant of grace or is it a covenant that points to the covenant of grace that's coming? Now you might say, what kind of question is this? Why do we, why do we care? Well, this is the difference between where the, the streams of Christianity that went paedo-baptist, infant baptism, and Baptists have separated, and the Congregationalists that don't uh, practice uh, infant baptism. This is where we separated. Because our Presbyterian brothers faithful in searching the Scriptures, faithful in trying to wrestle with these truths, came to the idea that there is a covenant of mercy that is found in Genesis chapter 3 and is found again in Genesis chapter 12 and is found throughout the Old Testament, including the Sinai covenant, that these are administrations of the covenant of grace. And our Baptist fathers, they said, no, that's not right. The Old Testament law is not a covenant of grace. It's gracious that God gave it. It has gracious features, and it certainly points to the grace of God found in Christ in the future, but it has a nature to it that is works-based. Do this and live. Stay in the land that that I'm giving you, God says. What does He say about that? Well, if you obey my laws and if you obey my covenant, then you shall be unto me a special people. Disobey, and guess what happens? Exile. Is that not what the Bible clearly teaches? Being in the land under the covenant is a condition of obedience. And God gave them gracious means to stay in the land even with sinning. The sacrificial system. But none of that availed perfectly in itself. None of it, as our author will say, could cleanse the conscience. And there's some distinctions here, like I said, that would takes so long to really get into because this is a serious argument. And like I said, many brilliant people have disagreed. We understand that. We're trying to interpret the Scriptures and what they say, and that's not always easy. But my friends, what we come to is the covenant of grace is the covenant sealed in the blood of Christ. Every covenant before that is preparatory. God is leading us to Christ. God is preparing us for Christ. It's what Paul said, the end or the aim of the law is Christ. It's not, the law is not the mercy, but it points us to the mercy. It's that schoolmaster that takes us by the hand and leads us somewhere. It's not it, it itself, it leads us to what it is. And by the way, this argument has long been noted as being a difficult thing, even for those who would disagree with us. You know, uh, Calvin, in his commentary on Hebrews chapter 8, says, 
the Apostle Paul quotes from Jeremiah 31.31. Now, this is the promise of a what? New covenant. A new covenant. And here's what he wrote about this, making the point that it is clearly distinguished as a new covenant. He says, The prophet might otherwise have said only this, I will renew the covenant which through your fault has come to nothing. But he doesn't say I will renew the covenant under different terms. He says I will make a new covenant unlike the old one. This is the, la- the language, if you will, of something of different substance. It has elements that are the same. We talked about this recently. He doesn't say I will get rid of the law. He says I'll put it in your minds and write it upon your heart. Paul deals with this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. But this is an important point. Because if Abraham was under the covenant of grace, if Sinai is under the covenant of grace, if it's just a different administration of the same substance, then we have an argument that Abraham was told that in this covenant I will be your God and the God of your offspring, and you are to circumcise them. Sinai commands the same thing. What does this mean? Well, it helps us to understand how our brothers come to the idea that baptism as the sign of the new covenant must be done for our children. But our Baptist forefathers said, no, we differ because we don't see the covenants that way. Abraham wasn't in the new covenant. He was saved by the new covenant. Maybe say this. This might be helpful. Owen says this. No believer was saved under or in or through the Old Covenant. Let me me try to put this a different way. Here's what he said. He said, while many were saved in the days of the Old Covenant, none were saved through the Old Covenant. They were all saved through Christ and the New Covenant, the Covenant of Mercy. And so Abraham was saved by the New Covenant, right? Even if he lived before it was given. And this is what our Baptist forefathers have taught us. It's how we came to differ and say, no, we're not to baptize infants. And here's why. Because the church is the body of believers. Right? So this would take hours to really do properly. I'm just trying to show you, why does Hebrews 8 play into this? Well, when you read Hebrews 8, what do you read the language of? Well, as we already mentioned, what is said there in quoting Jeremiah of a new covenant... But Owen came to this conclusion based on verse 6. He says this, But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry. It's better. More excellent. No question about that. We've been arguing that for a long time. Inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. We've argued that all along. Better priest, better covenant. But listen to this next phrase which is established on better promises. They're not the same promises. It can't be of the same substance if the promises attached are different. Now, our Baptist forefathers argued that, but John Owen, who was not a Baptist, said that makes it pretty clear. But even if that doesn't make it clear that it's of different substance, he says, look at that word for established. Established. In the Greek, this word is nomotheteo. And it actually means to have a legal founding, a different legal founding. 
Well, this goes back to what it said earlier. If there's a change of priest, there must also necessarily be a change of law. It's not the same. It's a new covenant, not a restipulation of the old covenant. It's an entirely new covenant. The old covenant points to it. The old covenant helps us to understand it through type and shadow, but it's of a different substance. Let me say it this way. As we come to this table, this is very important. It's not just that Christ is better. The author of Hebrews has been making that argument, hasn't he? He's better than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than Aaron, greater than David, greater than the angels. We can go down a long list, can't we? Greater high priest, greater intercessor, greater mediator, greater sacrifice. And we might say, okay, just like in a, in a test in school, Maybe I'm a little bit worse student than you are. You're a greater student. I get an 82 on the test and you get an 89. Is that the way Christ is greater than those pictures? No, Christ is not fractionally better, right? Christ is not a little bit better in some sense in which we're comparing them. When it says that Christ is greater, it's in this way. Part to whole. Imperfect to perfect. It's not just that we say, oh... Well, there were varying high priests in the Old Testament and some were greater than others. That's true, no doubt. The author of Hebrews makes that argument. That is not what he's saying about Jesus. He is not a little bit better than all those that came before. They were men and he is the God-man. Right? They were imperfect. He is perfect. The sacrifice they gave, were some of the animals better than other animals in terms of being spotless or being whatever? Yes, no doubt about it, right? You offer a sacrifice, maybe one looks a little better than the other, but that's not what we're talking about with Jesus. He's not a little bit better. He's not even just a lot better. They are imperfect. He is perfect. They do not avail. He avails. Right? One is part. One is whole. That's the argument of Hebrews. Christ is better because He's wholly different. And that makes the covenant wholly different. And that's what he says here. He says, what has been made obsolete is passing away. Go back and look at Hebrews 3 and 4. No, try that again. 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. See what Paul says. The glory of the new covenant in Christ is so glorious, it's as if the old covenant had no glory at all. And we say this over and over again. It does not mean the old covenant had no glory. It means the light and glory of the new covenant is so great that by comparison we now see The Old Covenant looks dim by comparison. Because as Paul says, one was intended to pass away and the other is everlasting. When we come to our benediction at the end of the service, listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 13. He calls the covenant the everlasting covenant. He's been arguing throughout this letter what was given at Sinai was not everlasting. But what is given in Christ is And that makes it greater, not by degree, but by substance, it makes it better. So brothers and sisters, why this should matter to us is, uh, it explains to us what God has been doing, how he has saved us. It reminds us that when we come to this table, we don't come to remember just some basic principles or something. We come to remember that Christ came, fully God and fully man, perfect, glorious, the spotless Lamb of God, 
that he went to Calvary's cross and gave his life as an atonement for us. And that we come to this table by faith. We come here and remember what Christ did, what no one else could do, what Christ alone accomplished. And we celebrate him.